Welcome to Medical Student StudyCast, the podcast to help third-year medical students study for clerkships, where I have the questions and you have the answers. I'm your host, Josh Bradford, a third-year medical student at Rocky Vista University. The goal of this podcast is to help medical students study for high-yield topics, actively test knowledge, and practice providing answers to preceptor questions. I used several resources and picked out some of the highest-yield information. This podcast uses question-and-answer format that can help test and gauge what you know and help identify the knowledge gaps. I encourage you to do your best to actively answer the questions. This isn't a podcast you can passively listen to, but will be a very useful way to help you use your commute time studying. Let's get started. Psychiatry clerkship. In this episode, we will cover psychotic, delusional, dissociative, and catatonic disorders. Some general advice about these topics. Psychotic disorders are incredibly high yield, especially on the test. And uh, once you see them in a uh, psychiatric hospital, you'll never forget them. Always pay attention to the timeline. Like mentioned before, timeline is very important. When you hear a patient case, pay attention to how long the symptoms have occurred and how long they've not occurred for. So two days, two weeks, two years, very important. Also, make uh, an effort to identify the main disorder. For example, is it a mood disorder with psychosis or is it schizoaffective disorder which has psychosis and then some mood symptoms? Okay, let's get started. Patient is a 19-year-old male in his second semester of college. He recently stopped going to class and has started failing classes despite being an honor student last semester. He believes that his professors are part of a secret cult and the patient has deciphered a secret code using class schedules. The outer wall of his apartment is coated with now rancid milk that he that helps keep away the cult members from him. He hears voices from previous students that were kidnapped by the cult. He hasn't eaten recently and used few words when answering questions. What is this diagnosis? Okay, well, this gets us to our first part. It depends on the timeline. So, if I said that this has been happening for uh, multiple semesters, that would imply at least six months, and that would be schizophrenia. If it was less than that time period, so one month to six months, what would it be? And that's schizophreniform. And then if it's between one day and one month, what's that? That would be a brief psychotic disorder. In this case, what were some examples of the positive symptoms? So he heard voices and he had delusions. So hallucinations, especially auditory hallucinations, are very common in schizophrenia. And then delusions, which are fixed but unverifiable beliefs and uh, wasn't taking care of himself, so disorganized behavior. Now, what area of the brain is responsible for the positive symptoms? Okay, this is a relatively high yield topic or idea, this would be the mesolimbic tract. There's an increased dopamine in the mesolimbic tract, which is why typical antipsychotics, which decrease dopamine over the entire brain, work in decreasing positive symptoms. And how I'd like you to remember this is limbs go crazy. So mesolimbic tract makes you crazy. And Positive symptoms are often the most identifiable symptoms of someone's schizophrenia, so limbs go crazy. Mesolimbic tract, positive symptoms. What are examples of negative symptoms? Negative symptoms can be remembered using the four A's. Affect, anhedonia, 
allergia, apathy. Flat affect is a uh, lack of expression on their face. Anhedonia, what is that? That's decreased pleasure in pleasurable activities. Elogia, that's poverty of speech. And then apathy. So the four A's. Now, what area of the brain do negative symptoms come from? This is the mesocortical tract. There's decreased dopamine in the mesocortical tract. All right, how I want you to remember this is subtracting dopamine from the cortex. So subtracting, that's negative symptoms. Subtracting dopamine means that dopamine's decreased. And the cortex is the outer part of the brain where a lot of uh, sophisticated human behaviors are uh, processed, including smiling and caring and speaking. And so you're subtracting those things, subtracting the dopamine. So subtracting dopamine from the cortex. What types of delusions are common? So common delusions include paranoia or grandiosity. And these are beliefs that are not supported by fact. Uh, again, just because this is important, how long do the symptoms need to occur to be considered schizophrenia? That's greater than six months. Okay, you have a patient with delusions, hallucinations, and not a significant number of negative symptoms. What medication would be best, especially in treating the positive symptoms? So if you just want to treat the positive symptoms, typical antipsychotics such as haloperidol or thyridazine are very effective. Now, what is more likely to occur first, positive symptoms or negative symptoms? So it's not uncommon for a uh, question stem to show negative symptoms first and then positive symptoms. The negative symptoms can be similar to depression or anxiety. So you, what do you need to keep an eye out for and what's on the differential diagnosis? So this might be major depressive disorder with psychotic features or it's schizophrenia that started with negative symptoms such as apathy, anhedonia, flat affect, and then progressed into the negative and positive symptoms. A 22-year-old male asked what the chances are he will get schizophrenia, knowing that his older brother has schizophrenia. All right, so his chances are about 10%. So there's a 1 in 10 chance that a sibling will get schizophrenia if a primary sibling has it. It's important to remember that psychosis is neurotoxic and can lead to cognitive impairment if extended or repeated multiple times. So what causes psychosis? We kind of talked about the positive and negative symptoms, but in this case I'm getting at genetic predisposition and a life stressor. So for example, a 23-year-old female who has an uncle with schizophrenia, and then she recently lost her job and then her house, and then she had delusions, hallucinations, flat affect, and uh, poverty of speech for three weeks. What would that be? That would be a brief psychotic disorder. Both brief psychotic disorder and schizophreniform can progress into schizophrenia. What's the best medication used to treat these disorders? Depending on the target, they're uh, either first generation or typical antipsychotics or atypical antipsychotics. But does treating either one of those prevent the lifetime progression to schizophrenia? And that's no. A 28-year-old female with a 12-month history of fixed belief that her intestines have been switched with an alien. Auditory hallucinations that tell her she's been studying studied by both the government and by aliens, as well as a flat affect and confusing speech during the initial interview. 
She recently presents with depressed mood, guilt about her condition, and insomnia for the last couple of months. What is it? So this is schizoaffective disorder. These presentations can be a little confusing, but you will have someone with schizophrenia or a psychotic disorder as the baseline, and then a mood disorder that's added on top of it. So this is schizophrenia with a mood disorder, and it can be either mania or depression. What's essential to make the diagnosis? The key here is you have psychotic symptoms without the mood symptoms, and they say for at least two weeks. This uh, fact that there's psychosis first makes psychosis the primary disorder, and hence it's schizoaffective. Now, if psychosis occurs after or only during mood symptoms, then the diagnosis might be major depressive disorder or bipolar with psychotic features. What's the best way to treat these? So anything that has mood and a psychotic feature can use antipsychotics and antidepressants. Just make sure that it's appropriate for the patient. All right, a 24-year-old male with the belief that he is the rightful heir of France. He holds a job, he goes on dates occasionally. What's the diagnosis? This would be a delusional disorder. It's a fixed belief, and so it's a delusion that's not changing despite evidence, but it doesn't really have a serious impact or influence on the life. And what's the best way to identify a delusional disorder? In the question stem, there should be evidence that they had normal things going on in life, and they might try and trick you uh, and saying like he only goes on dates occasionally, like he's unable to hold a long-term relationship. But I mean, either that could be the delusion, you know, minorly affecting his life, or he's only 24 years old. Just keep that in mind. Moving on to dissociation, what is dissociation? So dissociation is a separation of memory and identity. And it's generally the loss of the sense of self. And there are a couple of different types, but it usually always occurs after a trauma. So the reason I kind of stuck all of these in here, delusional, psychotic, and now dissociative, is because these are all kind of separations from reality. What is depersonalization? That's the loss of identification with self. And what's an example of that? That might be a out-of-body experience. So you feel like you're outside of your own body watching yourself act even though you don't think you're the one doing it. What's derealization? De Excuse me. It's the loss of identification with environment. And that might be experiencing life as if it were in a dream. So you're looking in life, but it feels like it's not real, like it's a dream. What's amnesia? That's the loss of personal memory. Think Jason Bourne here. Somebody who had a traumatic event, lost memory about the event and about himself. Now there's a person who comes to your office, has had serious trauma, and upon history identifies that there are multiple identities in the individual, and when asked about the trauma, the patient changes to a new identity. What is this? This is dissociation identity disorder. It's diagnosed as having two or more distinct identities, where one of them, the purpose of it is what? So the purpose of the different identity states is generally to hide the traumatic memories from the original person. And what happens when the protective identity takes over? The original person will have gaps in memory called blackouts. And what are the signs that this is a real disorder and not just malingering? This is when it's consistent over time. The protective identity appears when questions of trauma are pushed. 
there are paradoxical behaviors that are noted about the patient where they act differently in each personality, especially when people aren't watching or when they're not even noticing. And what's fascinating about this, there can be, act, be actual facial muscular changes in appearance. So the person can visually change in front of you and you can identify when they're switching um, personalities. What other psychiatric disorders can occur with dissociative identity disorder? These can include borderline personality disorder and psychotic disorders. Those are also on the differential diagnosis, so they can occur together or separately and kind of confuse each other. Remember, borderline personality, they can have a lot of um, ups and downs, very reactive and splitting. They're either the best or the worst. That can kind of have a similar feature to dissociative identity disorder as well as occur with it. Now, what's the best treatment for this? That would be psychotherapy to deal with the trauma and to make the original person aware of the different identities and incorporate them into the original person. What is dissociative amnesia? And so this is a loss of personal memory, especially related to a trauma. If the person runs away during this time period, what's it called? And this would be dissociative amnesia with fugue. The travel makes it fugue. So travel is the essential part that defines fugue. That's a better way of saying it. What other psychiatric disorders are highly related? Someone with dissociative amnesia is really likely to have major depressive disorder and makes, puts them at very high risk for suicide. Just like all the other ones, the best treatment is trauma. What really astounded me is the prevalence of dissociative amnesia. Lifetime risk is what? This is 6 to 7%, which is pretty high. Okay, we're going to move on to the last disorder, catatonia. What is this described as? Here there are a loss of purposeful movement. It tends to be kind of described in a couple of different ways. So there can be a kind of fully catatonic where there's no movement at all, or there can be a kind of movement-based catatonia that's excited. So we have a retarded or excited types. And what's catalepsy? This is a rigid immobility where the patient can be placed into positions and they'll hold it. This is also kind of described as a waxy or stiff flexibility. There are multiple different descriptions of the behaviors. Just in case you come into contact with these and you're not sure, we're going to go through them so you kind of think catatonia when you hear them. What's negativism? This is resistance to command. What's mutism? Relatively simple, being mute or not speaking. What's echolalia? Echo is copying and lalia is phrases, so this is copying repeating phrases. What's echopraxia? Again, echo, copying, and in this case, praxia, which is action. So it's repeating and copying actions. What's stereotyping? Stereotyping is repeating purposeless movements multiple times. This might be something like you know, waving the arm back and forth, something that doesn't have a specific purpose. Anyways, there's a lot of overlap potential overlap in these. What psychiatric disorders are related to catatonia? So catatonia can occur as kind of subtypes or within the diagnosis of mood disorders, and that can be depression, more likely and possibly bipolar, as well as schizophrenia. 
It used to be really common with schizophrenia. It's really interesting that catatonia has actually decreased in prevalence over the last several um, decades, and I'm not quite sure why. You have a 23-year-old patient with major depressive disorder who is res resistant to commands, is repeating purposeless movement, and at times you can move them and they will stick in that position. What is the first-line treatment that you give them? So obviously there's a presentation for catatonia, and you give them lorazepam, or some sort of benzodiazepine. It's really interesting, this is a depressant, but it's very effective treatment. So giving lorazepam can treat and therefore diagnose a patient with catatonia. And if someone isn't moving, they have the potential of getting DVTs, especially if they're any high risk for hypercoagulability, or have malnutrition. We are done with uh, psychotic dissociative catatonic disorders. Thank you for listening to the Medical Student Study Cast. We're going to do a joke of the day. How many psychiatrists does it take to change a light bulb? Only one, but the light bulb has really got to want to change. That goes out to my preceptor. Disclaimer, this podcast is not meant to be the only resource of learning used for medical student clerkships. This podcast is not affiliated with Rockefeller University and should not be used to diagnose or treat patients. I'd like to thank freemusicarchive.org for the intro and outro music.